a real joy to be able to talk about the law and the gospel and the relationship with each other. I hope that um, you've got a great grounding in uh, specifically the moral law. I think I'm going to focus a little bit more on the, the other two, um, the civil and ceremonial aspects, but we'll, we'll do all of it. Um, and so I hope that they, these two will work together really well. Um, but not only are we going to look at the law, but we're going to see its relationship to the gospel. Um, so let me, uh, let me begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much for um, the chance to dig into your word, to know its depth and its truth, and I pray that you'll bless our discussion of it uh, and our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, getting into this, I wanted to begin with a couple of questions. One, I think, was uh, pretty well answered in the sermon, This, uh, and we even got the same um, Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your Lord, your law, O oh Lord. It is uh, meditation all the day. Um, but I want us to think about this second question, and maybe in your, your tables uh, you can have a couple of minutes to discuss uh, what can seem arbitrary. Do Christians just arbitrarily choose which laws to ignore and which to accept? And how do we decide which laws to follow and which ones don't apply? Um, I usually think it's the ones that I don't like. I uh, apply uh, to other people. And then the ones I do like and I can do, I apply myself. Uh, but how about a better standard? Um, take a couple minutes, greet one another at your table, say hello, or, uh, and, and then uh, do question number two. Let me uh, let me hear some responses. Any uh, what did, would you guys talk about? Anybody have a good answer? Anybody have any really bad answers? 
We had a bad answer. Good. We can only remember ten. You can only remember. Stick to the Ten Commandments. Stick to the Ten Commandments. That's all we can remember. All right, because it's all, all we can remember. All we want to remember. All right. Over here. Yes. How do I know I don't have to wear a head covering in church? Some other churches would tell me I do have to. All right. Good. All right. What about head coverings? Yes. I'll put my two cents in. We don't get to choose or decide. Who are we? It's not us. It's not up to us. Okay. Well, how do we know what God is telling us? That's the that I think is maybe the heart of the question. Rather, not which ones do we get to choose. Though I do think many of us fall into that, that it does become us. But how do we know what God's telling us? Well, for at least some of the laws, there are instances in the New Testament in which Jesus or Paul or someone else addresses specific laws or sets of laws. So then we kind of have that. All right. Good. So there is some instruction in the New Testament talking about fulfillment. You know, this very morning on Facebook, my... um, cousin, who is uh, a Mormon, uh, posted a meme on there uh, that said something to the effect of, uh, and it was quoting, I think it was Acts 10, where Cornelius sees the, uh, the, the animals, multiple animals, he says, what this passage is not saying is that God is sanctifying kosher, uh, the animals, all animals to eat, but what it is saying is, go to the nations. And he very quickly, you know, is the, the point that he's making here is, so we should still keep kosher. Because that wasn't the point of that passage. New Testament passage getting explained. Um, oh, it's, wow, what a, what a great, wonderful um, lead-in to this. Uh, I do want us to wrestle with this. I, I mean, I come to this with a lot of questions, and it was a lot of what drove me to continue to study um, after seminary to wrestle with this question. And really, at the heart of what I um, wrestled with is this continuity and discontinuity between the Old and the New Testament. Gospel and law, and if I just, you know, quickly summarize those things. But how much, how much uh, continuity is there, and how much discontinuity should there be? I think we're at a church here that preaches a lot from the Old Testament. We're, we're not ashamed to do it. We think it's God's word. We... We uh, talk about even the Ten Commandments and the law. We'd have a sermon like today. We're talking about the, the blessings of the law. There are many churches that don't do that. That you hardly ever hear a story from the Old Testament, and certainly not talking about the law. So we, we tend to err on the, the continuity end of things. But what's the problem? Um, what's, what's the problem with making a stark discontinuity? What's, this, what's the problem with making a stark discontinuity between Old and New Testaments? Um, well, I mean, for one, um, if we don't acknowledge some continuity, do we deny the, um, the, the connection between the Old and New Testament? Are there two gods? Does the gospel imply that the Old Testament law, uh, or the Old Testament as a whole, is a bad thing? Again, we heard a sermon that, that, um, that denied it. And in fact, a New Testament passage that says the law is good. Does the Bible provide two uh, different gods or two different modes of salvation? And there are lots of Christian traditions who, with, uh, or examples of people who struggle with this. That seems like maybe there's a different track for ethnic Israel. And maybe there's a different track for Gentiles. 
what are we saying about the law and about the God we worship if there's two ways to it? Um, certainly Jesus would want to have to say, well, wait a second, you mean I didn't have to die? <laughs> that there could have been another way to, for salvation than, than for me going to the cross? Um, and then sadly, there's a history where this stark discontinuity between Old and New Testament has led to a lot of anti-Semitism. Now, why would I say that? What's that? Because it has. Well, I mean, what's how, how has it? How, how has it? People have said, but it was the Jews who crucified Jesus. Okay. I'm taking it out of context. Or... Right, right. So that, the, and again, associating the stark contrast between uh, Old Testament, Jewish faith, and New Testament. So those are all some really bad things that happen when we show a stark discontinuity. But I've also often struggled with the problem of exaggerating the continuity. Have you ever thought that that could also be a problem? When there's too much continuity between Old and New Testament. Now, Jesus and the early Christians had some problems uh, with those who clung to the law. What was that problem? What was the problem that, uh, that Jesus faced and, and Paul faced in his adversaries? Okay, it's a very specific, um, that's, that, that's the substance of it. Oftentimes, how that gets communicated is legalism. Now, I'm not going to deny that there were legalists there. But here, listen to this. What would happen if Jesus only, if the purpose of Jesus was only to come, and the purpose of the gospel was only to correct legalists? Well, I guess I'm trying to get I'm trying to get to the if the problem that, that the New Testament was addressing was only legalism. What would that make Jesus? Really unnecessary. I think sometimes we can we can summarize the only problem with Jews in the first century was that they became legalistic. But really, like, I can imagine Isaiah or Elijah or, you know, John the Baptist following the law but not doing so in a legalistic way. Does Jesus have anything to say to them? Or is Jesus just a reformer? Look, I'm saying legalism was still a problem, but there has to be some other bit of contrast are we still under the obligations to perform the law? I think if we have too much continuity, sometimes we can say, wow, maybe the law still does apply. Uh, maybe maybe I'm, I'm going to uh, uh, fall under the, the covenant curses if I am somehow breaking the law. Maybe, uh, maybe that's a punishment that God has for our nation if we have turned away from the Lord. And those Old Testament passages start coming in if we don't see the discontinuity. Um, and perform it. So I want to focus on how is it, how is there continuity, how is there discontinuity between the two. Um, and so, but, I, but we, when we're doing this series on trajectory, so we want to start at the very beginning. Let's see the origins of the law. And here we see it in the garden. Um, the law is given to Adam. Uh, our Westminster Confession um, 19.1 says, God gave Adam a law 
Could you imagine that? What, what is the Garden of Eden like? Well, there's law there. This is before the fall, before sin entered the world. There's law. God gave Adam a law, a covenant of works, by which he bound him and all his posterity, that's you, to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Promise life upon the fulfilling and threaten death upon the breach of it and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. So, all humanity has a law given in the garden without respect to sin. And if they kept it, then what would happen? Life, yes. If they broke it? Death. Him? They broke it. Um, not, not giving away the ending there. Um, and this is a moral law, that it's there, not just a requirement, but it's a reflection of the moral nature of God. God is holy, he's just, he's good. And honestly, if you really search Genesis 1 and 2, you can see all Ten Commandments present there. You can see a law there. Now last week we had a, a chart that, uh, that Preston included that had everything on it. I've, I'm sort of breaking that chart up into, into specific stages to see it. If you could see creation and judgment here, covenant of works and obedience, this could all happen still in the garden. Implied in that, that there would be a time in which God would come and evaluate and judge Adam and his obedience or disobedience. Of course, that time had to come early because they were disobedient. There was judgment. But that stays out there for all of humanity, this, this uh, requirement of obedience. And so after man's sin, the law continues. How do we know that? Well, even Romans tells us. Death reigns. Death reigns throughout all humanity. Why are they judged? They're judged because we've departed the law. We've, we've broken it. We've rejected God as our, our Lord. Well, we don't have to take long before we see the origins of the law, and now we don't have to take long to see the origins of the gospel. Almost exactly, almost immediately after the penalty is announced, we see the promise of a hope that, that God gives to Adam and Eve, promising life apart, you know, in, as a blessing, as a grant, as a, as a gift that God gives. In light of their disobedience, um, he promises that there will be something done. Do you remember what he promises will happen? Anybody? Good. Bible scholars out there? What does he promise in Genesis 3.15? Okay, and that's the half of it. Yes, and, and the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And so maybe if we add another level here, we have this covenant of works, and then we get this promise that happens. There's still going to be a judgment, but something's going to intervene, and it's really vague, right? Seed of the woman. How's that going to happen? What is that going to look like? They've got the gospel promise, but they don't have the details. But they can cling to it. Okay, God said it's going to happen. There, this, there's going to be some salvation, but it's still ambiguous. If I can add another illustration here of what this is commenting, if you can see the, the light green circle is all of humanity, everybody in Adam, and then there's going to be some sort of representative, some seed that's going to intervene and do something out of humanity, a seed of the woman. Let's hold on to that. 
but that this is where the origins start to this understanding of the gospel. It's continued with a promise made to Abram. Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes an oath uh, in Genesis 15, and there he divides animals, Basically, that's a, a covenant uh, agreement saying, if I break this, it so happens to the one who breaks this, basically, I'm going to slice up animals, and whoever breaks this covenant, is that that's going to happen to, except the one who passes through is the one who swears by it. And it's God himself who passes through the damn animals. Basically saying, I will bring death upon myself if this promise doesn't come true. He's going to bring life here. And this, so the picture of redemption is getting a little bit clearer. That seed of the woman starts to get defined a little bit. Now it's the seed of Abraham. So we still see, we see now a new covenant uh, with Abraham, this promise being made, still a judgment to come, but some intervention that's going to happen that's going to bring blessing. Well, then the law seems to have returned. Um, We get to the time of Moses and Mount Sinai, the exodus coming out of Egypt. Um, God's people are given a law, and that law has pretty clear blessings and curses. Um, Deuteronomy 11, Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse. A blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord which your God but turn aside from the way in which I command you this day. And what does that sound like? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, to achieve salvation, maybe. But it's certainly, there's threats and, and blessings contingent upon our obedience. In our short little lesson so far, what does that sound like? It sounds like Adam. Somehow it sounds like we're back in the garden again with all these stipulations. What happened then to to Abraham? What happened to these promises that we're going to What happened to the intervener? The law returns, um, and it starts to define a people by ethnicity and by land. Um. Here, you know, many scholars have, have sort of said, well, it's not always clear that there are three types of law. Um, there's nowhere where, in Scripture where it distinguishes them, but I think it's pretty clear that we can categorize the law into groups. Um, the civil law, which means government, you know, Israel is defined during this time of Moses, which, which really stretches from Exodus all the way to the New Testament. It's defined by a, a nation and a, a geography, there's a government, there's a people that um, is defined by land, and, and its ethnicity is, is key to that. Um, but it's, it's really um, uh, the laws that, that define it, too. The, there are civil laws that go along with it. There's also ceremonial laws. These are things that involve sacrifices and purity laws and uh, things that, that involve the temple. 
And then there's the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments and things that, uh, that go along with, um, with morality that, that would even be distinguished between these. So these come into Israel, and there are curses for uh, disobedience and blessings for obedience. Again, not to give away the ending, but almost always they disobeyed. Hardly ever do you see um, obedience here. Does this promise, does this cancel out or replace the gospel promise? Which one came first? Moses' law, the law came with Moses or Abraham? Anybody? Abraham, okay. So does this one that comes second cancel it out? No, okay. How do they relate to each other? Yeah, some of you may know this passage in Galatians. Um, anybody want to read it? Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right. Galatians 3:16-18. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Thank you. Okay, so here Paul makes it very clear that the law um, did not annul the promise. I mean, there's a ton that we could say about this passage, but that's a pretty clear thing. There was something going on here. Uh, to, to state it about as boldly as I can, again, spend, I can spend a ton of time here, but I want to get on to other things. During the time of Israel's um, nation existence, from Moses all the way to the time of the New Testament in Christ, there is two levels of God's relationship with his people. There's a typological level where there's blessings and curses on a physical typological level. This doesn't mean that the people who disobey in the time of Israel are going to hell. Is that clear? It means that they're going to face physical punishment. They got carted off into exile. That didn't mean everybody in exile went to hell. They got cursed, but their curses were not salvific curses. Isaiah, I mean, you know, Jeremiah is there in, in exile. Most of the prophets are there in exile. They're suffering under the curse, so that didn't mean that they were going to hell. There was a typology that was happening that was represented. Their sin had consequences now, just as if they had obeyed, they would have prospered and had, had victory over the other nations in battle and would have prospered. Occasionally they do, but it's contingent on their obedience and disobedience. But also, during that time, they had the gospel that they clung to. And that promise had gone all the way back to Adam, but was there in Abram, of unconditional grace. Those who believed in that, not everybody in Israel believed in that, but every, those who in the nation who believed in that went to heaven, just stated in those terms. So the um, so Israel is saved by promise and a system that prefigures Christ. Is that clear? Any questions about that? That's a major. Yeah. Is there a day 
danger of looking at the Old Testament as like one big allegory for us that are after Christ? Yeah, so is there a danger of looking at it as one big allegory? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think there's a danger in not seeing it. There's, this is the danger of the continuity-discontinuity. Um, not to minimize our connection with the Old Testament. But if we don't see it as... Again, you, you might say allegory. I don't know all that you mean by that. But Christ defines uh, everything that goes on in the Old Testament in relationship to him. And even gospel writers like Matthew basically come out and say that Jesus is the new Israel. Um, and I think Paul makes that argument as well. There's a, con- there's a connection between Israel and Christ. Yeah, Preston. I think you, you sensed it, but I'm going to go ahead and tease it out because what you said about other. I think allegory would not be, a, 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 I think, I know Kevin agrees with that would not be the right way to, to speak of it. Typology is different from an allegory. And secondly, I think because of that, it's really important that what you said, that for us to remember that, that what, like you said, there is a, there is a law that's civil that is typological about land, which makes one rediscover what Adam rediscovered when he sinned and therefore had need of a savior. So that's the first use of the law. There's also a, a typological aspect of the law, which we call ceremonial, that points everyone forward towards the God, towards the fulfillment of the law in Christ. That's the sacrificial system. And I want to, I want to illustrate how those two things work together. Yeah. So that's important. So if he's going to the moral law, if you call that even typological, much less allegorical, that would be an area where, where we would have to change. Say, no, yeah. the moral law is, is literal. And, sense, you know. Yeah, and, I, and as, you know, that was also there even in the gardens. It was there before, before sin entered the world. So um, just to illustrate this here, now we've got the covenant of works that was with Adam that continues on covenant of blessing, and these two things are simultaneous. The, the, the Abraham going to heaven by faith in the promise to come and this typological blessings and curses. Um, who is to intercede? Well, maybe is it Israel that intercedes? It's un, you know, as far as, it's unclear how that's going to happen on Judgment Day. But I, I, I want to keep that illustration going, that all those in Adam have this representative that's supposed to do something to fulfill that promise. Um, go back and read Habakkuk, uh, the first couple chapters. It won't take it long, but you'll see those two things going on here. He spends almost all of chapter 1 saying, there's this danger coming of this curse. And then, in the middle of it, it's basically, but nevertheless, I know the just will live by faith. <laughs> you know, Even though all these curses are going to come from our disobedience and our sin, and it's just that they come, typologically, still, we're going to live by our faith. Um, and, and of course the New Testament picks up on that so why the law why does it come about and I think this is a huge question because we often don't talk about the reason the law is there um, and I'm specifically thinking about the, the things that defined it is the law then contrary to the promises uh, of God certainly not for if the law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under the... Wait a second, what does that mean? Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. How does that work? 
Now before faith came, we were held captive. Faith there is faith in Christ, before the revelation of the gospel. We were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith in Christ. I mean, that's got so many pretzels in it, it's crazy. Um, but I think this idea that the law is coming in there, at least in some sense, what, you know, the, the, the defining sense of Israel is, is this guardian aspect that keeps it under lock, that keeps it bound in, in its existence. Um, in other words, um, this is this is oftentimes the, the passage is called schoolmaster. Um, I think scholars have said it's not the teacher, but the schoolmaster, the 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 guy that this is referring to, is the, is the one, the slave really in the family that takes you by the ear and drags you to school um, to keep you in line to make sure you don't go off the path and start wandering. And that's really what the purpose of the law is here. So that Israel, in some sense, can keep. It's identity. Because if they didn't have the law there, he would start to blend in and look like the rest of Adam. The rest of humanity. And so some of what the law kept it as a nation started to define it and, and, and kept it in check. Further zeroing in on who that representative would be. Ultimately passing it down to a, a Messiah in the Davidic covenant. But we'll, we'll not touch too much on that. But here, I just want to illustrate that representative in the center there the law kind of functions to keep it in place, to keep it in as a, as a guardian. What was life like under the Mosaic law? Well, fulfillness, fulfillment, uh, fulfilling of the law, uh, faithfulness to the law, was a good thing. You know, it, it wasn't just that if someone was being faithful, they didn't work on the Sabbath or they didn't, you know, kill somebody, that, oh, you're just being a legalist. Uh, it's not legalism to obey the law. In fact, the opposite of the law, all throughout the prophets, the opposite of the law was not grace. The opposite of the law was idolatry and sin. I mean, prophets came in to say, not you're missing understanding grace. Oftentimes their, mes- their, their message was, you're not understanding. You're, you're following after these other. You're acting just like who? The pagans, the sinful nations. You're you're losing your identity. Your identity is Israel. You're you're going way out there. And the curses came. And how did they understand these curses? They were all the nationalistic curses, not as the Babylonians attacking him, not as the Assyrians. He was always God. God was the one who was responding with these curses. So these temporal curses, uh, because of disobeying the law. And in the New Testament, uh, many people, New Testament era, the first century, I should say, many people saw that Rome was an extension of those, those curses that had been coming, um, an extension of, of exile. So life under the Mosaic Law continued. Um, what about people who are zealous for the law? Is it bad to be zealous for the law? Well, you look at someone like Phineas in Numbers 25, and he is a hero. Uh, it's a, I, you know, there's nobody uh, under eight. Well, there's a baby here, but no, nobody under 18 here. Uh, guys, reading that story, it's it's rough. Uh, it's a guy basically having an adulterous affair, or, or having a relationship with a, a woman from another nation. And as they're in the act of consummating that, Phineas comes in and gets them both with a spear. 
Why is he doing that? He's doing that because they've completely left Israel. By doing they were mixing with this, with this other nation. And so he is, is noted not as a, a Pharisee, not as a legalist, but as someone who stands up for the law. I think this kind of frames Paul in his pre-conversion state. Why is he breathing threats against the church? What is he really after? I don't think he's just some grumpy old man that says, I don't like the new way people are doing things in the kingdom of God. I think he's actually passionate about the law. What is happening in the early Christians that would get him so upset? What are they not doing? Which which part of it? Temple worship. Okay, temple worship, maybe, maybe not. Very clear that they're not circumcising. Here are, and who cares about the Gentiles? Here are Jews who are not getting their kids circumcised. Whoa, what are you doing? And so he is acting like a good, zealous person and trying to get those people back on the bandwagon with a covenant. Um, So he goes to the synagogues to persecute um, these Christians. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't, he, he didn't understand what the significance of Jesus was. We'll get to that. But, but just there's more, than, there's more than just legalism going on here. But I do think legalism is attached. All right, so is the law a bad thing? Well, then we get to some of Paul's words as he's converted, and all of a sudden we see all these bad things that he says about it, where it appears bad. Here's, here is sort of the key. As we're, we're drawing close, so I'm going to try to go a little bit quicker, but this is really a time I want to slow down. Was the law bad? Romans 7. We are a bit of that read today. What shall we say? Is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had been for the law, I would not have known sin. Sin seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So, so the law is holy and righteous and good. The law is good. Paul is clear to say that. The problem is, me and the law together, not a good mix. (laughs) Romans 8, he goes on from 7 into 8, as it usually goes, 7 to 8. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. What is wrong with the law? Nothing. What is, why does it say weakened? What's wrong? Us. Yes, we're the problem. We're the problem. God has done, that will be in Christ, what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Law plus anybody in Adam equals death. If the law is attached to you, you're going to die because it will condemn you. It's not bad, but it's bad for us. If it's up to us to find blessing through the law, we're in deep trouble. So let's continue Romans 8.3. For God has done, what did he do? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Where does he send his son? Into sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. I, I mean, I hope that really clicks. Because that is the heart of the gospel. Is seeing the law attached to Adam is a problem. And so God responds, bringing Jesus into that place to save us. 
Um, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. Where? Born of a woman, born into Adam, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Father, Father. God brings Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, into Adam and into, under the wall, into that place, into that very place, as a representative, or that foreshadowed representative, to be there. If the law came to concentrate and, and sort of zero in on sin, Jesus came to that very place. Oh. Yeah. All right, so again, uh, the way Paul's logic works, he actually started with the conclusion and then gave the grounds to it, but then we can get to that conclusion. Therefore, if you're in Christ, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I'm not condemned. You cannot be condemned because you're now in Christ. To show this chart again, covenant of works continues all the way. Covenant of Abraham, now we see that it was always pointing to Christ and his fulfillment, and so we're still saved by faith. Now we know that that's in Christ. Covenant at Sinai is now defined by Christ. It stops there. No longer does Israel need to be grouped together and defined because that has gotten its fulfillment in who Christ was. So what's the point of the law? It defined a representative humanity, Israel. And God's intent was to further pass that role to a single representative, a Messiah. And one New Testament theologian put it like this. He said that Israel is like the bomb squad. They're in charge of dealing with the bomb, and the bomb is sin. Except they fell in love with the bomb. <laughs> what happens if you cling on to the law? It, you don't pass it on. If you don't pass that bomb on to the one who can deal with it, which is your representative, Christ, and who can deal with the bomb, and you hang on to it yourself, it's going to be messy. This is always meant to be passed on to Christ. Christ says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then in Romans, uh, Paul says, For Christ is not the end of the law. Or, sorry, Christ is the end of the law, which isn't like the finish of the law, but the fulfillment of the law, the telos, for righteousness to everyone who believes. This God man comes into humanity where that representative has been zeroed in and deals with sin at that very place. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that if you've been baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his death, we're buried therefore with him in baptism into, into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, where, how does this passage fit in? If you think of the where, the, the what shall we say, shall we continue in sin, as shall we continue in Adam? No. What Christ has done by coming into humanity, into Adam, and dealing with sin, he's now brought death and resurrection, so we no longer live in Adam. We now died, resurrected, and now find our life in Christ. Amen. That's the gospel. You died to Adam and that whole sinfulness there. 
and now we have new life. Now, it doesn't mean we're completely full of sin. That's what Romans 6, the rest of Romans 6 says, therefore now, stop sinning, because you've died to it. Uh, stop acting like you're in Adam. But now you're in Christ, and everything changes. The law condemned us. Why? Because we were in Adam. Our relationship with the law now changes because we're now in Christ through death and resurrection. We die. Romans 7, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. While we were living in the flesh, in Adam, our passions aroused by the law were, weak, uh, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we were released from the law through our death to Adam. And now uh, we should have been held captive so that we might serve in a new way, in the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. What happened if you cling to the law? If you cling to the law, you misunderstand your Adamness. You don't get the fact that he's always going to provide death to you. That's why we can look at the Sermon on the Mount, not, Sermon on the Mount, not as... Uh, an intensification of the law, but actually trying to call Pharisees on the carpet. Basically, no, no, you're trying to minimize the law into these just the, the exact words of what it's saying. No, it goes much deeper. Your problem in Adam is much deeper. Um, but if you also clung to the law, um, well, I already said that. We, 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 if we cling to the law, we, we will wind up in death to ourselves. What happens when the church preaches law to those outside? What happens when we start wagging the finger at society? If we just say, hey, God, society, the Bible tells you you should act like this. Or let's all return to the biblical way of living when people are in Adam. What are we actually doing? We're killing them. We are killing them. Because we're just giving law. That's the heart of the spirituality doctrine. Basically saying we preach the gospel because the world is not gonna is, is gonna die if we just give them law. We'd say a ton of more about this. Our relationship with the law um, and the gospel, the antithesis between the law and gospel ends the moment someone becomes a Christian. Got three uses of the law in the sermon. Um, you know. This should change our life now. Sanctification. It's not that we were saved by God in, in His grace and now it's up to us. But we're now free to do the law. Gaffin's quote here is wonderful. Briefly, apart from the law, uh, for, for, apart from the gospel and outside of Christ, the law was my enemy and it condemned me. Why? Because God was my enemy and condemned me. But with the gospel and in Christ, united to Him by faith, the law is no longer my enemy, but my friend. Why? Because God is now no longer my enemy, but my friend. And the law, his will, the law in its, its moral core, as a reflective of his character and concerns, eternally um, inherent in his own person, and so what pleases him, is now my friendly guide for life and fellowship with him. All right. Um, we're we still got a couple more things to say on this, but just questions about that. I know that's a lot, but I hope that that gives give sense to this. How? Yeah, so first off, any questions? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And I don't remember why now that it was a question. Because <laughs> it was like a little while ago. Yeah, and sure. I was confused about the seed thing and about Israel's role. And I was trying to reconcile in my head how their role as basically priesthood to the nations yes. right. sort of fit yeah. with their... If you see that typological level going by, you see all of humanity, do they have a sense that they're sinful? No, not really. There's no real, there's no real um, radar screen. They're not even on the radar screen. But they're given an example of this nation. What's so special about Israel? Nothing really. They're just chosen. They're, they're just, they're, there's nothing in them of themselves. They're a random sampling of humanity. They're given the law to keep them sort of steady. And it's continuing to point out to the rest of the world <laughs> that humanity is simple. And that humanity in Adam is sinful and needs something. So they, they act in that defined way uh, as a representative, um, but that failed representative. And always needing now to point to something that better has to happen. And that for God to, to reconcile. So I think that, that in that way it does show, it does sort of depict to the entire world um, that there is a God, that sin is actually real, that there is a penalty for it, um, but there are people also that hold on to a promise that, in spite of their sin, God is still going to intervene and do something. And that intervention, again, throughout the Old Testament, is foggy until it comes to the New Testament. We get we get clarity that oh, that was always meant to point to Christ. How does this change how you read the Old Testament? Honestly, guys, most of the time we go to read the Old Testament, we fall into moralisms. Be like Daniel. Be like David. Be like all these other figures. If this is correct, what that's saying is you're already like these guys. Because you're already failing like they failed. The real hero of this is God. God's got a story that he's telling of redemption. That says you who are an Adam have fallen. And it continues to point to say, even though things look like they're chaotic around you, hang on to the promise, because God has answered that promise, part one, and we'll bring it to fulfillment. All right, my daughter's here. That's fine. <laughs> La- yeah? The, it's a silly question. Um, the Israelites were called the you say Mosaic, are you referring to Moses? Yeah, Moses, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So on, on Mount Sinai, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I do think that's really important, yeah. So this is, uh, as Israel comes out of Egypt, on Mount Sinai, God gives a law, and it's pretty clear on the stipulations that this nation, this will now be a nation, and they're going to be defined by their obedience or disobedience to the to this law. And that's going to go all the way until Christ comes. I, I never heard that term. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's helpful. Yeah, Craig. There's a great Christian rapper that says, uh, in the Old Testament we were saved by credit, now we're saved by debit. Right? I think that's really helpful. They were, they were waiting. They were waiting for Christ and now we don't wait. Yeah. Okay, any, uh, yeah, Josh. So is there any role for the law in being sold? Uh, is there any role for the law in what? So if, you, if, if preaching the law is legalism, it, in terms of not outside of the church, is there any role for the law 
Well, so clearly the the moral law is something that was given at, in the garden. So there is something deep in our humanity. But if we approach people as these are like human things to do, not as like this is the church's message. But I then can stand shoulder to shoulder with a Muslim and say that. I can stand shoulder to shoulder with a Buddhist and say that. But not as I don't have to say that as a Christian. I can certainly say, look, God has made humanity like this. And we can see just in examples, if we depart from that, it's not going to go well. Uh, it won't lead to human flourishing. It won't give you what you, you decided. So we can point out some of the issues with it. But if I give a specifically Christian message, and my Christian message is the law, what we're going to be doing is condemning people. So, yeah. Um, is for the believer, the law that we adhere to now, is it only the moral law, not the civil and ceremonial yeah, everything gets defined by Christ. Even the moral law gets fulfilled by Christ. Right. But the, the new life we now have can read back all of those laws and see our identity in Christ as, uh, as, as part of it. And so, yes, the, the moral law continues uh, that has been there ever since the beginning um, and that the other ones you know, fulfilled itself in Christ as they, they sort of adumbrated it for um, defined it as a shadow. So, I, I just want to clarify. I mean, it's just like, like moral law would be like general revelatory. So, the moral law defined in, in the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments. Right. It's yeah. general revelation, basically, what you should be doing. Well, I, saying? I'm, I mean, saying, I, I'm, I'm saying clearly that's a guide for the Christian. And all of it, if it's applied to a non believer alone, Right. will we'll we'll condemn. condemn. Right. But we can certainly say, look, this is this is a good thing. Um, but if we preach it as you must do this, that that's bringing that's bringing condemnation and death. What is the message of the church? The message of the church is God's redeeming plan for this. The, the, if the, if we see our job now as the morality police, man, help us. Really. We do this so often. Christians just constantly wagging the finger at the world. Shame on you, world. You should be better. Where do we get off doing that? We are saved by grace. Um, we, need to, we need to remember that. So our use of law, we've got to be wise in the fact that if you're in Adam, you've got no hope. We're only preaching death if we keep preaching that. All right. Let me uh, close with Father, thank you uh, for your grace to us, for the redeeming grace. And thank you even for the law, um, how lovely it is, how wonderful it is that uh, now that it doesn't condemn us, we can rejoice in it. Now that we're in Christ uh, and freed from its condemnation, we can uh, walk as you have uh, called us and designed us to do and in line with your character, uh, knowing um, the love that you have for us and make us a blessing to all nations through the Christ that we proclaim. We pray in his name. Amen.